Welcome to the Lucky Let Gord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Thrilled to be with you Wednesday, September 15th. And yes, the Grand Slam season of 2021 is in the books. And wow, did it finish with a bang. Novak Djokovic defeated by Daniil Medvedev, 6-4-6-4-6-4. That ends the quest for the calendar year Grand Slam of the great world number one, Novak Djokovic. We're going to be talking about that match and many other things with Tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink, who's kind enough to stop by and join us after spending his weekend down in Flushing Meadows, taking in the action. You don't know Steve. Well, you know Steve. He's a Hall of Famer. He's been around the game for half a century. He's seen it all. He was around when Rod Laver in 1969 became the last male to win the calendar year Grand Slam. So you guessed it. He's got some insights. And we're also going to be talking about that wild women's final. What a surprise it was to see the first unseeded final in Grand Slam history between Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez. What does it mean for women's tennis going forward? What are the implications? And what did Steve Flink like about the games of those two players? So much to talk about. So much to break down and very excited to do that for you guys today. So sit tight, take a listen, and we will see you on the other side. Steve Flink, I am so thrilled to speak with you today. So glad we could catch up after what was a very historic U.S. Open weekend. How are you? I'm doing fine, Chris. I hope you are as well. It's quite a, quite a fortnight across the board <laughs> we've had a couple of days to decompress uh so where have you where has your mind led you i just want to start with what we thought was the march to history for novak djokovic and it ended up with as a crowning for daniel medvedev have you processed this match fully do you have any uh quick takes to start with well, uh, the, the first thing that just comes to mind is 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 there's some mystery in terms of what was um, what what Novak was going through in his mind, what what he was enduring, what his mindset was, because you could, he had this euphoric crowd behind him it was a rare experience for him to have, and I think ninety percent of that crowd was behind him, and they to the point they're applauding Medvedev's double faults and. I mean, they actually got a little rude toward Medvedev, but uh, who understood, by the way, because they just they thought they were there for to watch a, a, somebody hitting hitting a great historical miles, milestone. Yeah. And uh, but I I guess the lingering questions will always be from his end because obviously Medvedev played beautifully, executed beautifully, had a had a, a very uh, effective game plan and stuck with it so all in all credit to him because he dealt with the circumstances as well as he could and played a first-rate match no doubt would have been hard to beat under any circumstances so let's start with that on now but conversely this was not the essential Novak Djokovic and uh, yes he had he had shaky first sets in his other matches and it, it all started with the third round match against Kane Ishikori was that was when he dropped the first set there and it continued through Brooksby and and right on to Berrettini and Zarev. So this was the fifth straight match in the final that he's dropping the first set. But there was a different feeling about this one to me. And I just felt like there was, there was a listlessness. There was a sense that he could not get his body what, what he wanted. To, his body was not obeying orders. Yeah. And uh, so I felt like throughout the match, unwilling to grind, 
feeling like he had to get to the net more often than maybe was healthy because Medvedev was able, especially when Novak came in during a point as opposed to the serve and volley, which was was uh, a, a good tactic and because he kept pulling him wide and opening the court. I thought that worked nicely, although I think it took something out of him. But try to, trying to press forward at other times when maybe he would have been better off to prolong the rallies and test Medvedev more and use his drop shot. We didn't see the Djokovic. The, the renowned Djokovic backhand drop shot was hardly used. And that was another, uh, you know, that was another telltale sign. So I guess... The question is to me, and I don't know, I'd love to know how you felt, was how much of this was physical depletion, how much of it was emotional exhaustion going after the Grand Slam and knowing he was within reach but feeling like he wasn't playing his best and the strain accumulating. Uh, I don't think we'll, we'll, we really know based on Novak's post-match remarks because he put, touched on both and, and was very gracious. But I think in time maybe we'll hear more from him on that. What do you, what, how did you feel? Maybe we will. Yeah, I mean, what I what I remember vividly is after Friday's victory over Alexander Zverev, how Djokovic spent his time talking about how he was going to leave it all on court, how it was going to be the last match of his career in some ways, and how he's going to pr- approach it that way. And he clearly wasn't able to do that against Medvedev, and it it became obvious early on that he wasn't going to be able to, and it it was strange to see. It was dis- now that's that that there you go, there you go. That's an important point you make because I thought it was obvious early on too, because in the very first game, forty fifteen on Novak serve, and he let that get away with a lot of sloppy play. By the way, Medvedev didn't do anything that special over those last four points, and immediately he's down the break. And then, you know, he ends up winning three points on Medvedev served the whole set. But he also also almost went down two breaks. It's not as if at Love 2 he really he, he salvaged that game, but there was nothing convincing. I mean, he just bailed himself out. But, yes, I think the signs were there from early on, which is why I believe that maybe the physical aspect was an even larger piece of the puzzle than the mental. Yeah, I th- I think it had to be there, right? I mean, he spent so many... We were watching him come back from a set down and all tournament long, and then the struggles with Zverev were very real. It was a difficult match, and the, the hours on court added up, and we knew the toll the run had been taking on him emotionally, right? We knew that was there, so I, maybe it's a combination of both things where it just it just hit the wall at this moment. It's it's hard to really yeah. say, right? And like you said, maybe we'll know more if there were injuries or whatnot. In the, but in that the was another months. thing. I, I, I like that re- that phrase too, yes. He the, he clearly hit the wall physically and emotionally, which is one of the saddest parts of it because to me it takes nothing away from Medvedev who's been knocking on the door, who was so close against Rafa in the finals in 2019 and took him to 6-4 in the fifth and had a break point in the final game to make it 5-all. He was that close. Uh, and then did make the final in Australia, where he was on a big 20-match winning streak, and everybody thought he was ready to win. Many, many thought he was ready to win in Melbourne this year, and Novak beat him 5-2-2. Two, and two. So there's no doubt Medvedev has been closing in on this kind of accomplishment, so I don't want to diminish that in the least. But, but he, was not, he knew he was not playing a top-of-the-line Djokovic, and had he been, we would have been in for a treat. And yeah. it would have been the perfect way to end the Grand Slam season, to have these guys go out in a hard-fought four- or five-set match. It might have been quite similar to the Zarev match, by the way, uh, had Novak been in form. And maybe they would have gone down to the wire and it could have gone to a fifth set or close four set or whatever the case. But we, but we should, I think we should have had that 
we de- we deserve that kind of a match. It's it's unlucky that we didn't get it. Yeah. Because Novak had been so remarkable all the way through this Grand Slam run, Chris. If you think back on it, you know he's a, he's in a dangerous five setter against Taylor Fritz in Australia in early round match, third round I believe, and he and he and he uh, he got out of it, but he was he had this injury. You know he was worried about that that injury was troubling him, and he didn't practice in the ensuing days much, and gradually got better to the point where he did beat Medvedev handily in the final. And then he goes to Roland Garros, and he's twice down two sets to love. Played a strange match against Musetti, uh, the yeah. Italian, when he lost two tiebreakers to go down two sets, and it was a very subpar performance, and then he blitzed him from there, and then again, Tsitsipas in the finals, down two sets again. And then Wimbledon, that was fairly straightforward, because he only lost the one set in the first round and the one set in the final, two total. Yep. But obviously there had been some tough moments along the way, not to mention the incredible struggle against Rafa in the semifinals at Roland Garros. So he had been so remarkably uh, uh, resilient and, and great under pressure, under duress, all the way through that. I guess we, we thought, why, why wouldn't it be, why would it be any different for the final? He'll do it again. But you could see, I mean, there, there are always the signs with him. He never got a chance, Chris, to show that, that typical Djokovic emotive side where he gets an opening, takes it, gets a break, and then the fist pump, and then you you know he's about to take himself to another level. And that's what I think might have happened. I'm not certain, but I think it might have happened if he'd converted the love 40 at the start of the second set to go to love, and if he or if he'd done it two games later when he had two more break points to go up 3-1. Yes. Uh, either of those chances, the crowd would have been uh, eupeptic. They would have gone wild, and Djokovic himself would have been roused by it. I, I, I think enough to get him going. Whether it would have been enough to carry him through the set and the match, we don't know. But he needed. He so sorely needed a lift like that. And again, to Medvedev's credit, I felt like Novak let two good openings get away in the first time in the second game when he had Love 40, where he came in for a drop shot. The Medvedev was onto it quickly and decided decided to slice his forehand cross court instead of coming over it. And Medvedev was able to pass him down the line without too much trouble. And then the third break point on the in that game where he just hit a slice back into the net and was sort of slapping his chest in anger afterwards and disbelief that he had missed it but the second break second time in the fourth game of that of that second set Medvedev played two very good break points uh to get out of it one of them was a really nice little touch finesse volley and the other a deep back end on the line that Djokovic could not uh could not get back into play couldn't answer it so I get Medvedev it was a combination because Medvedev was very sturdy in that game and Novak was a little shaky in the first one but had he taken either of those openings I think that uh, that really might have revved him up and might it might have changed the chemistry of the match. We'll never know. Medvedev, of course, was was unyielding, unbending on his side, which certainly had something to do with it. Yeah, very good points on that. I, I think it it should be said that Medvedev played maybe the match of his life. He was incredible in his contest. So the the, the fact that he was so good and, and Novak was maybe so flat comparatively to what he had been and not as resilient. 
I mean, this is a guy that came back 10 times from a set down in this Grand Slam season. He was he always found a way that, as you mentioned, the comebacks from two sets down. And, yeah. and, and you know, you hit upon it. The, the beginning of the second set did feel so critical. And, it, and at that point, I remember watching and just feeling so exciting that, that, we're, that Novak was going to get back into this match, that it was going to be an incredible dogfight to the finish. And, you know, with the, with the atmosphere in Arthur Ashe Stadium and, and the way it was feeling at that moment, I felt like, okay, this is the point where it turns and it becomes a real battle. Uh, and, yeah, it looked and, that way. And he it, couldn't it get really over the hump. And credit to, maybe, credit maybe to Medvedev there for he served so boldly. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. His second serve was really an effective shot in this match. If you look, he won 58% of the points on it compared to just 40% for Novak. And I think I feel like he came out with a really courageous mindset. And he, and he, when he needed it, he was there and he delivered and he was able to take take those critical points away from Novak. Yeah, no doubt about all of that. And that's a great percentage for second serve points one. And he mixed up the speeds on it. He went for some very big second serves and other, other times the kicker Novak didn't always know it was coming. On the other hand, I also think that was another example of Djokovic's physical uh, being below par physically in the sense that he seemed slow off the mark to get, you know, make that quick move that he normally does. Yeah to jump on a serve the way he can read it and then get his racket on it, not only get his racket but on it, but get it back pretty deep and and leave his uh, opponent a little bit dumbfounded. He wasn't able to do that on first or second serve returns very often. And I think that was, that, that was revealing. It was revealing because, let's face it, he faced great servers in Berrettini and Zarev in the quarters and semis, and look what he was able to do on the return against them over the course of the match. Now, obviously longer matches and it helped and he wore them out in some senses but part of it too was that he was sharper he was reading the serve better did Medvedev serve better than those two you could argue that he did I don't know if he served any better than Zara but he was very disciplined there's no doubt about it very disciplined how he backed up his serve as well that also made a difference because when the returns were coming back Medvedev wasn't panicking and he was constructing the points uh, on his terms and keeping the ball pretty deep and changing his his uh, changing the pace well. He gives you a lot of soft, deep shots, and then if he gets something a little shorter, he steps in and, and adds a little velocity to his shots. He's yeah. very cagey that way, and he did that well. Cagey. But again, we, did, we certainly didn't see anything like the best of returning from Djokovic, regardless of how great Medvedev's serve was, and it was first rate. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it felt like in a way that the tables turned a little bit on Djokovic and that... I, usually it's the inexperienced guys, the Zverevs, the Medvedevs that end up spending too much time on court, and they end up in the Grand Slam final against a you know, member of the big three, and they just can't find their way through, whether it be fatigue, whether it be physical, lack of experience, all these things. And, and it's, I guess, maybe part of Djokovic's inability to finally close the door and win this Grand Slam was the fact that he just spent too much time and was too invested emotionally not just in this tournament, but over the course of the whole Grand Slam season. And it's just, I found it sad in a way. It just You just think one of the greatest achievements in tennis history is kind of on our doorstep. And then it, it I'm very happy to, 
for Daniel Medvedev and the way he played and for him to win his first major, but there's a little bit of an air of disappointment where you thought there was a possibility for something so epic to occur, and it it didn't happen. Yeah, no, I I totally concur, and it would have been, he would have been, obviously you have to earn it, so you can't say he deserved it until he got it. Yep. But had he done it, he would have been so worthy of the honor because he is in this era the ultimate all-surface player. The surfaces, Chris, are, there's a little more sameness with the balls, the speed of the courts, for a lot of reasons. It's, this is not like, say, the labor era when Rod won in 69. Uh, like obviously, there were three majors on grass back then. All The other three were all on grass except for Roland Garros on the clay. But there was a much bigger difference, as there was even in the Sampras era. The grass played faster. There was, there was a, a harder transition for the players from surface to surface, I think. Yeah. However... That still doesn't change the fact that Djokovic is—he's very versatile and and ex- transitional. He's able to go from surface to surface better, I think, than Rafa or Roger in a lot of ways, and that's why he put himself within reach of this. Yeah. Because obviously, year after year, nine times that Australian has been his, so he's always had that. Those are nine years where he's given himself the opportunity to eventually win a Grand Slam, while Rafa has only won, for instance, one Australian. There's an example why he's never been close. And then Roger only has his one French. So Novak, you know, finally gets his second French this year, and there he goes along the path. And, yeah, it's it's definitely a sad thing for him because I think the other part of it, Chris, is that he put him, he was so open about it. Yes, he didn't want to talk too much about it in New York, understandably, to keep talking. And that's why he would say to Patrick McEnany, no, I'm only thinking of the next match. Or he joked with them after the semis, let's just think about it as me going for my fourth U.S. Open. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's understandable. But you knew he, he had openly stated the goal, really pretty much after Roland Garros. Yep. He was very clear what he was going after, and we knew it all the way through Wimbledon, that he wasn't thinking about just winning Wimbledon for the sixth time. He was thinking about where it was going to lead him. And so uh, I thought that was commendable, that he, he was so open about wanting this goal and believing that he could accomplish the goal. Yeah. So uh, it, 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 it was a sad thing for the sport in that sense and that he, that he couldn't fulfill the wishes of a crowd that was yearning for him to get the triumph. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's very commendable, the effort that he put forth. And I, I wonder if I could ask you, Steve, about, you know, we're always talking legacy and we're always comparing Novak with the other members of the big three, Roger and Rafa now all tied, still remain tied at 20 grand slams. Um, what do you think this means legacy wise? And how do you see things playing out? Obviously, Djokovic is the youngest of the group and probably has the, the legs to run a little bit further and win more slams than the other two. But where do you think we're headed when, when we talk about 2022? Well, it's a great question. I mean, let's start with Roger. It's it's I think it's unimaginable. I mean, if he does it, it's, it's, it is a spectacular accomplishment if he somehow managed to come back next year and win Wimbledon, for instance, which I think, frankly, would be the only one that he could win, that could have any chance to win at this stage of his career. But I think it's highly unlikely. Yep. Coming off a, a, another knee surgery, a third one uh, after the two last year, one, one now uh, recently, uh, it's it's an awful lot to ask of a 40-year-old man who then is also trying to just get back into match-playing shape. Yeah. So I just think it's very unlikely, and Roger's career could well end next year at some point. I mean, if, for instance, if he gets another setback like he had this year that's going to require another surgery, I 
can't imagine trying to come back from that. So I think the, the likelihood is that we have seen all of the great Federer accomplishments and we'll weigh them accordingly when the time comes. RAF is a different story. If the foot doesn't act up, of course, we learned a lot more about that over the summer. We didn't know. None of us really knew how serious that had been really going back to 05, he said, uh, that this had been a problem for him. And he had, he's managed it in, incredibly well. Uh, but again, now he's trying to come back after having missed all that time post Roland Garros, comes back for one tournament, yeah. and loses to Lloyd Harris, and then he's gone again for the rest of the year. So I think we'll, there'll be some clear signs maybe early on in Australia. Is, the, is he physically healthy? Is he okay? But if he is, there certainly is a, a legitimate, I mean, you've got to believe that at least next year and maybe the year after, he's still a prime contender at Roland Garros. Again, all contingent upon the foot not, uh, not giving him any serious difficulties. And so his body's holding up. And then finally we come to Novak. Well, yes, I think this will motivate him even more. I think had he won the Grand Slam, there would have been a part of him that might have even, uh, I, I know it sounds strange, but a part of him might have wanted to retire. Uh, because to have 21 plus a Grand Slam, his case would have been there even if Rafa had tied him or gone past him. In, you know, even if Rafa had gotten to 21 or 22, we'll never know the answer to that. And I could be wrong, but I think it would have been immensely fulfilling and but now the 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 engine engines of motivation remain it, it's only going to increase his desire to win more because he'll he'll want that to make sure he goes to 21 22 23 as far as he can get and also want to make sure he keeps he does keep himself not even with Rafa but ahead of Rafa and he'll, so he'll be very he'll be very highly charged for Australia to try to get 21 there uh, particularly knowing that there's a potential that Rafa comes back and ties him in Roland Garros if he's not if he's not careful. That so that potential. part I think is fascinating. I don't expect Roger to be a, you know a part of this conversation going forward, but Rafa quite possibly yes. Okay, now that's interesting. I agree with you, of course, on Roger. Um, it's going to be tough, right? It would be a miracle for another major. Rafa, we don't know about with the foot. Djokovic, you made all the right points. I think if the passion's there, we know he can he can do more damage. But here's my next question, because you've kind of, kind of segued me into it. What does Medvedev's win, being the first really big win in a Grand Slam final against Djokovic from this younger generation, do for the aura of the young guys? Or, or how do they perceive Djokovic's aura now? Has anything changed dynamically? And, and is, is this an opportunity for the guys like Medvedev, guys like Zverev, to, to maybe next year seize upon this opportunity and take another step and be more of a threat to Djokovic. Well, I just think they'd be, they'll be encouraged. They'll feel like it was, it was yeah, they, they'll feel like if Medvedev, you know, Azarev will feel it. And yep. um, for, for sure, he will. Sitsipas will. They'll, they'll be saying to themselves, you know, that could have been me. That should have been me. I, 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 I Daniel's a great player, but so am I. And the, Yes, it's opened up a window in their minds to some degree. Conversely, they also know it was not a, it wasn't the best Djokovic, and they wish they could have played him on a day when <laughs> Novak was was battling don't so many. All. I don't want to say demons, but struggling inordinately. So, uh, but yes, Daniel will will encourage them because they've been waiting for a moment like this. It was different with Team last year at the Open. Team didn't go through Novak. Novak had been disqualified. Team beat. Zarev in the finals is a different kind of feeling. Great accomplishment for him to get on the board, 
but not the same as this to go right through Novak Djokovic to get your first major. But then again, they don't know what this effect is going to be, Chris, on Medvedev himself. Maybe it leads leads Medvedev to be uh, significantly better than them. Maybe he becomes a better, we don't know yet whether, but maybe he becomes, starts thwarting them. Yeah, you know, and they keep—they're trying to beat Medvedev in the semis or finals of majors, and he's stopping them. That no—that's the fascinating part of it. Does it lead Medvedev to another level where he starts winning majors regularly, and establishes himself over time next year or the year after, possibly next year, can try to establish himself as the best player in the world and get to number one, and win, start winning multiple majors, and and that—that will be interesting. But I do think. It has that effect. It makes me think of the young Sampras saw Courier get to number one before him. And his attitude was, if Jim can do it, so can I. And there's a lot of that in, in the upper levels of the sport. Yes. Yeah, it's nice. And yeah, you mentioned Medvedev. I think he's definitely made some huge strides with three slam finals and now a title all on hard courts. So the, he's definitely a threat on the hard courts. And we'll see if he can expand his empire. You said it. You, <laughs> yeah, you said it. That's a good, that's a point we have to make because so far it has been predominantly hard courts almost entirely. He made some strides at Roland Garros to get to the quarters this year. And then Sitsipas, who had only beaten them once before, knocked him out there in a spirited performance from Stefanos. Yep. Uh, and then at Wimbledon, Medvedev actually played well at Wimbledon, got to the quarters there. And then Herkosh beat him after coming back the second day down two sets to one. It looked like Daniel was going to be in the semis, and he probably would have beaten, you know, he he might have gone to the final. Yeah. Yeah, I think. He might have gone to the final. And, uh, you know, it it, it it's. He played well. He played well in both majors. Let's put it that way. And and I so I'm seeing signs from Medvedev that he will conquer. Maybe he's always going to be at his best on hard courts, but I think he over time is going to get a lot better on the other surfaces too. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice to see. Um, shall we switch over to and talk about the women a bit, or, or do you have any final points about? Uh, Djokovic's quest and uh, the exciting finish to the Grand Slam season for Daniel Medvedev. No, I think I think we covered it well. Okay, let's let's look at let's look a little bit on what was uh, really just one of the, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm curious to talk to you about this. We've spoken about it briefly on the phone last week, but one of the most improbable women's finals in Grand Slam history that I've that I've seen, uh, and it was fantastic. It was beautiful in so many ways. Uh, and it, it's a lot of food for thought in this final between Emma Raducanu, who was 150 in the world, 338 before Wimbledon, and Leila Fernandez, number 73 in the world. Um, both of them had breakout performances and just really captivated the imagination of tennis fans all over the world. Steve, can you make any sense of this craziness? Yeah, no. Before I do, I just want to make a quick uh, amendment there that Medvedev actually the Wimbledon loss was actually in the fourth round against Hercosh. Then oh, yeah. he would have played Roger in the quarters, and I think probably would have won that. We might have seen him in the final. So just a, but point point still. I still make the same point. He can get a lot better on grass. He can still get a lot better on clay. Now to the women. Yes. Make some sense of it. Here's <laughs> Fernandez, 73 in the world. Uh, had not, if you looked at some of the losses she'd had along the way this year, you would never believe that she would make this kind of a run. And yet, I think what happened in her case, and then we can get to Emma in a second, is... It's only a kick. 
a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. That I think the the none of us can possibly measure how much it meant to her even though Naomi imploded a little bit in their match. But to be down against Naomi Osaka, who's the defending champion, who's won the title twice, who's got four majors in her collection, and she's serving for the match against you at 7-5-6-5, and you haven't broken her yet. And you break her, and you win the tie break in the second set, and you win in three. I think to get a second life like that, she had to have gone back that night and said, oh, my God, I wasn't near breaking her. She was dominating me on her serve. How did I do that? And then it became a habit because she was down a set and 4-2 to Kerber. And Angie needed two more holds, couldn't get them. She, she was phenomenal against Svitolina, who threw her heart and soul into that match and played beautifully, and it went all the way to 5 on the tiebreak in the third. It was so tight. And yet she got through another one against another veteran, wily competitor. And finally... With a little help from Sabalenka, who self-destructed, especially, you know, Sabalenka was crushing her in the first set up 4-1 and just hitting her, her, her ground game was, was just devastatingly potent. She was blowing her off the court, yep. serving brilliantly, just too good. And yet she finds a way to win that set and eventually comes back and wins it 6-4 in the third when Sabalenka self-destructs a bit in the last game of the match, you know, she... She can often be her own worst enemy. But the point yeah. is that Fernandez brought these brought this out of these women. She brought it out of them. You know, she had to be the one that put herself in the position where she demanded that they find a way to finish her off, and she wouldn't do it. She's a very guileful left-hander. Unbelievable for someone turning 19 to, 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 to be that good a match player and be so probing and so uh, intelligent. Yeah. In, in tight situations, think her way so clearly through these in demanding situations, and she did it time and time again. Then, okay, let's go to the other side of the draw. No doubt that Raducanu had a really favorable draw, but she had to come out of the qualifying where nobody took a set from her, and then she rolled through the main draw, and the bottom line is if you're not in the main draw, nobody took her past 6-4 in the whole tournament. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think one, seven, one seven five set in the qualifying – in the main draw, nobody nobody got her past six four in seven matches, and I don't care if you have a good draw. That's a, that's still just stunning, and uh, you know beats Shelby Roberts, Rogers two and one after, um, you know after Shelby has beaten Ash Barty, which was a, obviously a major development in the tournament. Yeah, and and then she beats Benchich, who's the Olympic gold medalist, fairly routinely three and four, and finally. Uh, beat Sakari one and four, and Sakari was playing really well coming off her win. Uh, you know, had beaten both uh, Andrescu and Pliskova. Yep. So she beat the number six and four seeds and informed players, particularly Pliskova, and and she beats her one and four. So and finally caps it off by beating Layla. And in and, and I don't know how you felt, Chris, but I thought it was a terrific final. I think the score is so misleading in terms of the entertainment value of that match, a four and three match, but it went fairly close to two hours and it was just scintillating at times and the crowd was loving it and they wanted more they wanted Layla to come back at the end and and obviously uh, um, 
Raducanu had that problem with scraping her knee and the bleeding and had to take a little medical time out. And I think the fans were kind of hoping that she'd get rattled and lose the set so they could see one more. Yep. Uh, I, I, I think those two, Chris, are, are going to create a golden future for women's tennis. I sure hope so because we're seeing so much musical, musical chairs. You and I have talked about this. We spoke about it during the tournament, this, the fact that you don't get an, that much continuity. You don't know what's going to happen major to major. Some players come along and win a major, and then we don't hear much from them for the next several Grand Slam events, and it, that becomes frustrating. But these two, being so young at 18 and 19, I don't see why we couldn't see the makings here of a, a, of a major rivalry in women's tennis in the years to come because – you hear the comments about how well, but the other players are going to get to know their games. It's true. They'll become more familiar with their patterns to other players, but they're also going to get the improvement they're going to make is going to be gigantic because at, the, at, the, at their ages, I mean, think of how good they're going to be at a, at 21 and 22 as opposed to 18 and 19 yeah. after they've gained that experience. So I'm hoping that, you know, by the, we get to say 2025, 26 and, we're watching them play a fourth or fifth major final against each other. Uh, something along those lines, that we get something that enduring and important in women's tennis from these two young players who lit up Arthur Ashe Stadium uh, with their, in their final round clash. Wow. And the people took notice, right? I found out yesterday from ESPN that it was the, the high point of the tournament in terms of viewership it was during that wow, match, and not, not during the men's final in the States, which I thought was pretty remarkable. Must have been a lot of people interested in that match other than just us. But you make a good point. I mean, they're both so young. And what, what have we seen 14, maybe 15 first-time Grand Slam champions on the women's side since 2015. It's been a lot. And it has been a revolving door. What what do you think it will take for Radicanu Fernandez to stay there and to keep pushing for these titles? They're both, I will say one thing before I hand the mic to you. They both seem very mature for their age, and I think that's a thing that you don't always see with teenagers, even when they're having success. Chris, you sized it up. Uh, you sized it up and analyzed it very, very well. I, they are. They're they're tremendously mature, and they they're they're immensely confident. I mean, for example, uh, Raducanu was asked about. Fernandez reaching the final, you know, and I think I, I believe in one of the encore interviews, and the point of the question was clearly tilted toward getting her to say, "Isn't it, it's going to be so great to play a fellow teenager?" And I, I, I'm I'm so impressed with her, and Layla's terrific, and it'll be an honor to play her. But she went nowhere near that. She just talked about how she's only been thinking about herself, and that was not a negative. It was just kind of like, "Look, I'm here to do a job. I'm not." that worried about I'm not worried about I have to just keep take care of my own business I have to take care of my own needs I have to look at it from that perspective and then when I get out on the court with her I'll try to figure it out I'll I'll, I'll plan but she wasn't going to go anywhere near trying to just with any false flattery because I think she believed she was the best and it was exactly the same on the other side of the net Fernandez you know who who respected every one of those big name players that she beat I mean, no doubt she was thrilled to be able to bring down Naomi Osaka and, and someone as, great, as good as Svitolina, number five seed, and Angie Kerber, who's won the tournament, and, 
and then the number two seed in Sabalenka. I mean, and yet she said to herself, okay, they're great players, but I, I know what I can do now. I know that I have the game. I believe I can beat anybody. And that's how the way each of these girls approach the final. And frankly, I think it'll be the way they conduct themselves in the years to come. Uh, same way, that they belong, that they believe. And part of that is maturity, too. Now, there'll be some hard knocks along the way. There'll be players trying to, you know, there'll be targets in the sense of people not, now know it's a good win to beat them. Both of them inside the top 30 now, I guess. Yeah. I guess Raducanu went all the way up to 23, which is spectacular. <laughs> not a but, bad jump from 150. No, not at all. But you, you, have to, one, you have to figure, okay, yes, there will be these moments where uh, players that we don't even know that well right now might knock them off and cause a major upset. But I think these two will persevere. I think they'll endure because I think they're both so good. You know, Fernandez with that cagey left-handed style and ability to change direction in the rally, to come in unexpectedly, to, to show both touch and sufficient power mm. and, uh, and, and great match-playing skills. And then you have Raducanu, who, with the, to me, has very few holes in her game. She doesn't try to be overly fancy, and, but she constructs points with a, with a clear mind, and she's very sound on both sides. Her returns are great. Serve is very good and is going to get much better. So I think there's there's such an upside with both of them, and there's such a capacity to improve uh, in each of their cases. And I think they both take away something substantial from this tournament. I think Fernandez has nothing to be discouraged about because she beat all those big names and happened to lose to Raducanu. She she walked off that court knowing how how good Raducanu is, but also still saying to herself, "I'm I'm going to keep coming after her. I I'm I'm going to figure this out. I'm I'm going to." See what I can. I'm going to make some strategic changes. I'm going to look at that tape, and next time I'm going to beat her. And Raducanu, mm-hmm. just the opposite, saying no, no, you're not. So I just think they're they're very they're they're steely competitors too. And they and here they were, Chris. This is a major final, but you wouldn't have known it. I mean, I think they played. That could have been a quarterfinal. That could have been anywhere in the sense that they didn't. They weren't. They were not folding to the pressure. They were not. Uh, they were not. Awed, overawed by the occasion. Yeah. Raducanu had talked often about how she just wanted to play loose and take a free swing and because that's what got her to the the final in the first place. So they're asking, I think it was after the final, they're asking her, do you think it'll be different now moving forward? There'll be pressure. There'll be expectations. And she just she said, well, look what got me here, being free and being, being free of those expectations. I wonder, it'll be a challenge for her to stay free. Yeah, now that's interesting. The good point. I will say this: she got a little bit perturbed uh, toward the end of the first set, trying to close out the first set, and again at the end of the second set because Layla was so uh, she had so much resilience and and perspicacity and fighting back hard and <laughs> not willing to give up. And so there were just a few fleeting moments where Raducanu looked to me to be. Uh, frustrated or or uh, a little anxious and wanting to close out the set, wanting to close out the match. But I'm talking about a minor degree. Those are minor matters. Overall, she comported herself in the final just as well as she did in any of the previous rounds. And and so, for that matter, did Fernandez, because she, there's a certain joy she has in competing. You saw it right to the very end of the match. Absolutely. She she wasn't feeling a burden being down in the final and trying to fight. She was just like, let's see if I can get out of this one 
as I did all the other times. I think I can. You know, they're they're, they're very positive attitude from both of them, and and uh, very different players for sure. You know, righty versus lefty, and, and the contrasts are there. But they're both going to uh, they're, they're both great players to be sure. Do you think what we saw in the semifinals, which was two um, very experienced, higher ranked and women that we thought were really headed for a potential, you know, first maiden Grand Slam title with Sabalenka and Sakri, with these teenagers taking them out in that semifinal day, which I, was really shocking for me because I thought the the, the women were going to take out the girls and hold sway. I was so wrong about this tournament from the start on the women's side. But do you think it portends maybe a sort of a power shift that, that youth and younger players are actually going to eventually surpass some of these players that were waiting on to win their first Grand Slam? So the Sabalenkas of the world, the the Sakaris. I mean, there's a lot of good players out there. Iga Svantec's just 20 years old. She's showing a lot of progress. There's so many good players on the women's side. So I wonder, how do you see Raducanu Fernandez fitting in in the in the short in the near term, perhaps next season, the next two seasons? Do you think it's really their time, or was this a, a temporary fluke that they'll have to measure up to as time goes by? Well, I don't. I definitely don't think it was a fluke, and I definitely expect both of them. I expect Raducanu to to win her share of majors in the years ahead, and Fernandez to get there too. But that doesn't mean that Sabalenka and Sakari and Swidalina, a lot of the veterans, yeah. I, I wouldn't put Swidalina quite up with those two, but I, 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 or certainly not with Sabalenka, because Sabalenka, of course, has got this explosive kind of talent. She has to harness that power. She has to control her emotions better. But when she's on, she can blast anybody off the court, including these two. Yeah. Uh, so she's not going away, but I just feel, and, and I don't know for, as I say, I could see some suffering on behalf of, of both Layla and Emma and next year live, trying to live up to this. Of course. Suffering only, not because they defeat themselves or get discouraged, but because others come after them and see it, see it as a really, uh, a good opening and, 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 and take their chances. And they feel like they've got nothing to lose playing, playing these two who who have accomplished what they have. Uh, hard to say about 2022, uh, but in the long run, whatever happens next year, even if neither one of these, if Layla and neither Layla nor Emma win a major next year, I still think uh, in the that that would just be a that's that just would be a transitional phase, and that that they'll uh, in the years to follow they will bounce back emphatically. That's how I look at it with those two. But that also doesn't mean that Sabalenka doesn't strike it at the right time here and there and get get a few majors herself, I still feel she's so gifted and mm-hmm. such a powerhouse. And the the way she looked in those first five games against Layla, I didn't think anybody could, could beat her. Yeah, and I thought maybe for once she might actually sustain it, and she didn't. Yeah. She didn't. That set got away in a tiebreaker, and then she did come back and win the second, but she was very up and down again in the third set, and that's what she's got to conquer. And I think you can't play these sets that she does I, I mean, I still believe she can overcome it because you couldn't even make it last for a set if you weren't, if if the mechanics weren't there. This to me is really in her head. Yes, it's not that she had. I, I don't see any any really structural mechanical problems in her game. I think it's all about, you know, just keeping her cool and and finding that balance between going for winners and playing the percentages. And I still think she'll get there. She had a semi at Wimbledon, a semi here. 
it was a reason why she was seated second. So we're, she'll be in the mix for sure. But I, I think regardless of what happens to our two U.S. Open finalists here this year, the, and uh, whatever happens to them next year, in, over the long run, they are going to flourish. It, it does feel like it's sort of a transitional period. Like I'm starting to look closely at the Halops, the Kvitovas, the Pliskovas of the world who are getting on in age slightly, still plenty of room to run if they have the desire. But it feels like uh, it might be – the big titles might be going to younger players from, from maybe in the next few years and not those names that I just mentioned. But Yeah, in, in a way, you, you kind of hope so. And that's not to take anything away. I mean, Pliskova, she serves so beautifully. She she's fascinates me. She's got an interesting temperament, temperament. I enjoy watching her play, actually, because there are physical limitations. She's not the fastest woman out there, but but she's, she's, she, she makes up for it with her, with her power and accuracy on the serve and same off the ground. Uh, uh, you're right. I mean, Simona's, Simona's already had a Hall of Fame career, and whether she can move forward with these groups, the thing about Simona is she's got that immense heart, so I wouldn't give up on her. But I do yeah. believe that the trend is clearly toward youth. But let's, let's not forget a re-emerging Naomi. That's... Imagine in the mix, Raducanu, Fernandez, playing big matches against the likes of Ash Barty and a revitalized uh, Naomi Osaka. How about that for a future? Yes, I like it. I'll sign up for it. <laughs> uh, I really like Shiontech as well. I hope that she can keep herself involved. Um, and, and we... I do too. I do too. It'll be interesting to see if she, what she's able to do against these two. I, in some ways, she's sort of leveled off since the 2020 French. She hasn't embarrassed herself by any means, and uh, she's had some. She's played well and had that one. You know, she she's had some isolated wins here and there. I don't think she's through. But is she as good as the other two? I don't know. Based on the evidence of what I saw at the U.S. Open, the other two are slightly better than Sviantec. And another few names that are young that I'll throw at you. Coco Goff, Bianca Andreescu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So yeah, Bianca Andrescu, I worry about from a physical. I, I love her game, the feistiness, the you know, what a what a what a tremendous competitor, uh, fight fighter through and through, and she has got a, a, what she did to Serena in the U.S. Open final two years ago was spectacular because the returns were just out of this world, and I think when she's physically right. She can be in the mix with all of them, but I just, I just don't trust it. She got hurt again in the match against Sakari at the Open. Something yeah. is always going wrong with her physically. Coco, I shouldn't have left off my future uh, scenario because Coco is again. There's an, it, it, there's an immense upside for her. She's only just beginning to tap into it now. I've already seen some great improvement in her second serve, and forehand has improved, although it's still slightly flawed. But Coco is, is one of the fastest players, if not the fastest, out there. And again, the strides that she's going to make in the next three to four years, uh, we, we can only imagine. Yeah. And so I, 
I think, again, you know, when we're looking at the slightly longer-term future, we're looking at it at more of a five-year plan. She is right in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like her speed for sure. She's a great competitor as well. But I'm going to switch gears and ask you a question about the improbability of this women's final, Steve. Historically, you've been around the block a bit. To see someone like Raducanu come in and win a major and actually shatter a record by winning a major on her second main draw appearance at a Grand Slam, to see an all-unseeded final, the first in Grand Slam history, uh, where does this rank? Can you compare it to anything that you've seen in, in over the years in, in a women's singles draw at a Grand Slam? No, I mean, you, you, you brought up Sriantek was kind of a shocker, but it wasn't like this. I mean... Raducanu had to qualify for crying out loud. You know, yeah, she she made a big splash at Wimbledon. We saw her. We should we should have taken more note of it. But uh, then she still had to come here and qualify, and 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 she she blitzes through ten matches without losing a set. And uh, I I can't think of a, of a parallel to that. It's just that I think it was misleading, and that she just we. we Probably she was always this good, but she just hasn't had that much exposure, hasn't been able to play. She just hadn't had the opportunity, and she's so young. But obviously she's mature way beyond her years yeah. in terms of, of physicality and mental and emotional as well. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't think of any parallels here. Uh, I mean, at least Fernandez, you know, we, we'd seen her for a few years. We'd seen her coming. We didn't think she was ready to go to the U.S. Open final, but we'd been talking about Layla for uh, two years, let's say, and there'd been we 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 knew there was a potential for her to become a a really good player. We didn't know she'd be great like this, but but Raducanu, I mean, even based on Wimbledon, you couldn't have called this. You could could have thought that maybe okay, she'll qualify and she'll make it to the 16s, or maybe she maybe could get to the quarters. But it, that would have been the ceiling in, in, for most of us. That's how we would have seen it. So I, I, I think it's pretty much unprecedented in, in, in my experience. Wow. And, and the last question about Emma. I watched her press conference after the final on Saturday, and Chris Clary asked her a question about rebounding from what happened at, at Wimbledon, where essentially she suffered a panic attack and had to withdraw from a rounder 16 match. And he asked her if it was a triumph for her, not just to be, just to have this type of success, success based on what had happened to her at Wimbledon, and her answer to me was, I think, telling. And I wanted to know if you had made anything of it. She didn't really directly talk about it. She didn't. I thought it was very mature in the sense that she didn't want to relive it in the public eye and go through maybe how difficult it was for her. I thought it showed a lot of um, maybe maturity and wisdom that she answered that question that way. And I just wanted to ask if you had caught that or if you had given any thought to that subject. I hadn't thought that much about it, but you're right. It's pretty, it's fascinating in its way, the way she was able to not go at that answer directly. But on the other hand, you look at the panic attack at Wimbledon and then you see what she did at the Open. Okay, it's 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 Wimbledon versus... <laughs> It's Wimbledon as a British player versus New York and the U.S. Open. Okay, she maybe felt there was going to always be less of a burden performing in New York. On the other hand, once you've gone through that experience and and proven something like that to yourself, I would be surprised if that was not a very isolated thing at Wimbledon. She's moved past it. I think in a way maybe that was what she was trying to say in her answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those day, Those days are over. 
there'll be no more panic now. I think I showed you here in New York why, why there won't be, because it should have surfaced, it's certainly for the final. Finally, by the final, and having to play a fellow teenager, uh, if there was going to be a, a, a re-emerging panic, we should have seen it there. And there was, it just, as I say, there were a few isolated moments where she looked so, somewhat frustrated, but she got over it so fast. She went right back to work. She got the crucial breaks when she needed them. She closed it out. So I believe that I, I'm, I'm hoping that's a permanent, permanent change on her part, and I believe it is. Mm-hmm. So would, and, and in a segue then, would you say that that impressed you as well, that the fact that it was able to really become an issue of the past and not even of the present? It wasn't really even talked about that much at this tournament. No, it did impress me. It did impress me, and I, I think uh, I just never saw a sign of it reoccurring uh I, I never saw any recurring theme there because i kept uh, round by round the, the way she was able to deal with these circumstances and 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 keep in perspective what she was doing and actually uh, expect it from herself and then to go out and finish it off in the final against a very tough opponent who was uh, who, who who believed as much as she did that she was going to win the title i yeah i i'm 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 highly impressed with with her with her temperament mm. as, as much as i am with her tennis the temperament is just excellent and i i'm sure she again she'll have some tough losses but i think she'll keep it all in perspective and she'll know that what happened that fortnight in new york was was no accident and finally steve before we part ways here i want to just get your thoughts on being at the u.s open rather triumphant to have the tennis back with you know pretty much full capacity and a really, really special tournament and a, a final weekend that I know you were in attendance at. I mean, how good did it feel? What, what was your experience like? Was was the pandemic on your mind at all? Was, was it relief? Was it joy? Was you know? Can you? What are your final thoughts on what it was like to be back in New York and watching live tennis? Well, it was I was able. I was delighted to be out there for the men's semis to see the great Djokovic Zarev semifinal, and then of course for the for the final with Medvedev and, and Djokovic as well. And those were the days I was on site. It was it was re- relief and exhilaration uh, because it was a strange, very odd feeling last year to be sitting at home the whole tournament and knowing that there were virtually no press out there and there were no fans and the whole thing was a bit eerie and surreal and. Uh, I still great. I found great joy watching the matches, nonetheless. But it was it, those were my feelings then. This time it was, it, it was, recovering the feeling of going out, and and really enjoying, the the experience of sitting in that Ash Stadium and watching history unfold. However, it did. So I I was really I was very happy to be back out, on site. And 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 with with the, the full crowds only added to the it, it only it made it all the more enjoyable. Now, conversely, I have to say that before and after the matches, hanging out a bit in the press room uh, was it felt a bit like a ghost town because it, I I don't know exactly how many that I don't know if they let half the amount of press that they normally do. It seemed felt like less. I could be totally wrong. It might have been half. Full uh, to uh, compared to prior years, but it felt emptier than that, and there was a certain sadness. My feeling about that, yes, 
people were not mingling and talking. You know the press room as well as I, and you walk in and, you know, there's there's people and, and there's conversations going on, animated conversations, people <laughs> hanging out and talking. Yeah. There, there, were no, there was no paper this year, for instance, in the press room. They didn't hand out anything on paper. It was all online. Uh, they weren't using paper. They, people had to, were finding out about the interviews mainly online. So it was a very different kind of experience in there. But the experience out at, at courtside was it, it brought it brought the old days back to me again. It was it was a great feeling, you know, of of having been at all the all but one of the U.S. championships slash U.S. Open since 1965. Wow! And the the great pleasure I've always had in going out and being in that tournament. So the only one I missed was 1970. So. To be to at least be out there a couple of times this year at the end was was a very nice feeling. That's great. Um, Nineteen sixty five. That's that's amazing. I mean, for our listeners to you understand why Steve is the person to give perspective on the U.S. Open and on tennis in general. It's it's been such a ride with you, Steve. It's uh, it's and that of course, Chris was that was at Forest Hills. Those are the days that yes. of course were. Rod Laver did complete his second Grand Slam in 69. That was a very different flavor to that when the tournament was still held. It was held there through 77, and then they moved to Flushing Meadows in 78. So, uh, yeah, I've been very lucky because that's as a kid. That was, that was when I was a kid. Uh, at that point, I was only 13 years old. And and uh, so I've had quite a long history with, with, the, with the tournament. And so it, naturally it was a very gratifying to be back out there again at the end this year. That's, I'm just thinking about like what you were thinking in 1969. I mean, what you alluded to, you know, labor doing it mostly on grass and maybe it wasn't the type of achievement winning the grand slam that it, that it would have been this year. But I wonder if you back then, if you would no, have no, had... I would say Chris, I would say it was though in fairness, because oh, good. there were so many great grass court players that he was having to, yeah, that he had to deal with in those tournaments, including Tony Roach in an epic match in the semis of the Australian Open that started it all. Roach again at the very end in the finals of the U.S. Open at Forest Hills, and Arthur Ashe at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And Arthur was such an explosive, dangerous grass court player with his serve and his backhand. And so, and then uh, there were a number of others too I haven't mentioned. John Newcomb, of course, is oh my a, God. A, another countryman of Rod's who he beat in the finals of Wimbledon. So there was, and Rosewall who he had to beat in the finals of the French. So he had a really sterling cast of... He had opposition at the top that you could argue for his time was tougher than, say, Novak's even now. But obviously from top to bottom, the depth wasn't there. There wasn't as much talent from top to bottom. But the, the people that he had to... Uh, that he encountered in the latter stages of all those four majors were were really a very distinguished cast. So that, I, would, I still would rate that... I would still rate Rod's second Grand Slam there in 69 as the most impressive of all the Grand Slams that have been even more impressive than Steffi's or Margaret Court's or Maureen Connolly's or Don Budge's, you know, the other Grand Slammers. Oh, thank you for that, Steve. I didn't know we were going to get to this in the conversation, but I'm glad we did. Um, And I wanted to say you probably would have had no idea if you could have looked back at yourself in 69 thinking – uh, in the year 2021, someone's going to almost get a, another Grand Slam, but it's not going to happen. Do you think you would have believed that if somebody told you that in 69? You know, in 69, I have to, you know, I'm 17 at the time. And I, had, I, would, I, I think if you'd asked me then, I would have said, oh, yeah, somebody, 
I mean, this was fantastic what Rod did, but somebody's going to come along in 10 or 20 years and do this. And I think Don Budge used to talk about that, I mean, how hard it was to do. But I think everybody thought there were people that came along at various stages and that we thought maybe they, maybe they could pull off a Grand Slam. Maybe they can do this. And, and of course, it, it never did happen, which is, of course, what would have made Novak's all the more remarkable that 52 years later, after all of these great players across the, the realm of the open era didn't come close to winning a Grand Slam, that he got one match away from doing it. Yeah. Just just incredible. It is. You know, if you sweep aside the disappointment that you may be feeling, especially if you're a, a, a diehard Djokovic fan, and, and, and you just accept it for what it is and say that you look at the accomplishment that he won 27 straight at the Grand Slams, like you just mentioned, it's still a remarkable achievement. There's some well, you consolation. You know, Jim Courier... Yeah, Matt Vilander won the first two in '88, and then yeah. of course he lost at Wimbledon, so his was gone. Jim Courier in '92 won the first two, so there have been a few like that. And uh, but, and then we've had with the women, Martina Navratilova in '84 probably should have won the Grand Slam when the last one was in Australia that year, and she lost in the semifinals. And Serena, yeah. of course, in 2015 here at the Open, losing to Vinci in the semis. That was an, a gallant effort on her part to get that close too, but nobody. In the modern, I mean, Novak's was, you know, and, and there have been other near misses in history. Lou Hode in 56, losing to Roosevelt at Forest Hill. So we've had it. Jack Crawford in 33. But in modern times, mm-hmm. there's been nothing like this in open era men uh, for someone to get that close, especially when you consider that the likes of Federer, Nadal, Sampras, so many other players never, never got close, not even close. Yep. I mean, they had strings of three straight majors. Uh you know, and Novak had a streak of four in a row in 15 and 16, which was the first, he was the first player since Labor to even do that, to win four in a row over two years. But for for um, Novak to do it this year, uh, you know, at the age of 34, no less, uh, just, yes. just astounding. Yes, 34. I mean, you know, back in the day, it was you weren't supposed to win so many majors after the age of 30, but he's won quite a few and done quite a few remarkable things. So um, let's hope he can do some more next year. I think so. I think he will. I think in the next couple of years he's still going to get a bunch more, and and uh, it, it'll be fun to watch him pursuing it, as always, and to see if Rafa can 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 reemerge to himself next year. You know, he's, th- he's 35 now himself. It's not easy, but he's endured much longer than anybody ever thought he could. Yep. Novak, I think we always believed, you know, with the elasticity of the body, you know, the Gumby, <laughs> the Gumby of Djokovic, that, that maybe he could do it because he, he's such a phenomenal physical specimen. Not that Rafa isn't, but it looked like injuries might undo Rafa, but boy, has he has he endured and I still so I still give him a shot next year to absolutely to uh to put himself in circulation and to to uh play top flight tennis yeah. Australia will tell us a lot Chris about Nadal I think yeah it could be interesting um let's hope let's hope it's all clear over there and it isn't too painful to get players in the country and to play we still don't know about that yet but well, I have a feeling that they'll get. You're right. I'd be shocked if they don't get the find a way to get the players in. The question is, how, what will they do about fans? They might be faced with a U.S. Open 2020 U.S. Open situation where they have to pretty much not 
let fans in there. Ugh. That's the choice they might have to make. I don't even want to think about it right now, but I guess we have to, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's cut, let's cut the conversation here, though, Steve. Thank you for your words, for your perspective, for your time. It's greatly appreciated, um, and I hope we can maybe catch up again uh, sometime this season before the, before the curtains close on what has been a brilliant 2021 tennis season. So thanks for your time, Steve, and let's, let's chat again soon. Thanks, Chris. I, I enjoyed it immensely. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord podcast is a wrap. Special thanks to Steve Flink, tennis Hall of Famer, longtime tennis journalist, friend of myself, and friend of the podcast. Appreciate your time, Steve. Thanks to all for listening. That's a wrap for this edition. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you guys know that you can also find more from Tennis Now on the web. Our website is www.tennisnow.com. You can also find us on social media at Facebook at facebook.com slash tennisnow, on Twitter at tennis underscore now, Instagram, and of course, this podcast. Go into your Apple Podcast, type in Lucky Let Cord Podcast, and voila. We'd love it if you rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Every bit of support matters. We appreciate your listen. We appreciate your time. Take care. We'll see you next time.